Reader, today we're going to talk toilets. Not in a weird way or a gross way, but because they're a central theme in Susan Nielsen's No Fixed Address. Their big, white, porcelain symbols of the main character's resourcefulness as he navigates housing insecurity. And they're really important to think about in terms of access for your own students, really. Have a seat and let's chat. Today, I'm with Annie Brabazon, and we'll be talking about No Fixed Address by Susan Nielsen. Thanks for joining me, Annie. Tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Hi, Jeannie, thanks for having me. Um, I am a school librarian at Grand Isle School. We're currently a K through eight school, and uh, at the end of this year, we'll be becoming a K through six school. And I've been there, I'm, I'll be starting my ninth year in the fall. Prior to that, I was a public librarian for a while, and then prior to that, I worked in, in higher ed and student affairs. And I'm on the Dorothy Canfield Fisher Book Award Committee. This is my third year. Um, I'll be stepping off at the end of this, um, this spring. And uh, it's been a really great pleasure to be able to dive into a bunch of books and, and work with a committee of readers to figure out the best books that we want to present to kids in our community. You guys do an amazing job at that. I always love the list. And we're going to talk more about that list at the end. But let's start by introducing um, this fabulous, oh, <laughs> my heart is full of this book, uh, No Fixed Address. Um, I loved it so much I read it in a day. And I wondered if you might start by introducing us to our charming narrator, Felix. Felix Knudsen, right? He is 12 and I think he turns 13 in the course of the story. He. Um, he lives with his mom who prefers that she that he call her Astrid because she thinks uh, mom and dad might create a little bit of a hierarchy and she's not really into that. Um, he's a smart kid, he's a really funny kid, and he's a really, really sweet kid that uh, has to do a lot of adult things and, and kind of be the adult in his relationship with his mom more than a kid should have to be. Yeah, he has a kind of an out-of-the-box, non-heteronormative family. Do we mm -hmm. want to talk a little bit about his family circumstances? Sure. So his, uh, his mom, Astrid, uh, is not in a relationship with anybody. She goes in and out of different relationships, um, but that's not really the main focus of the book. Uh, and her, his dad is someone who he hears from once in a while, but... Uh, is a gay man who donated his sperm to Astrid so that um, she could have Felix. And he, his relationship with his dad, is, again, I think with both his parents, Felix kind of has to be the adult in those situations. Um, his, the, his dad is a struggling artist um, who is, uh, I think, caught up a little bit in finding romance in his life a little more than he is in... Um, consistently being a part of Felix's life and Felix is forgiving and understanding about that more than I think um, if I were me in that situation more than I think I might be um, and then Astrid is a, a mom who uh, has a hard time holding down a job she can't always um, hold back what she's thinking and feeling and it doesn't always work well in, in jobs that uh, in particular involve a service, a customer service component to them. Mm -hmm. So she might lose jobs pretty frequently throughout the story. And she struggles with depression. Felix calls it her slumps. And she, um, when those happen, he again has to step up and really be the, 
the parent and the adult um, in that situation. Yeah, there's, um, he really describes the slums really interesting. Since you brought that up, let's um, think about that for a minute. I love where he talks about what it's like when his mom is in a slump. And I'm on page 87. I'll just read a portion of it. She likes to say that the day I was born was the happiest day of her life, and she named me after her brother to keep his memory alive. I think that's why she likes me to call her Astrid instead of mom, because that's what original Felix calls her. I know some people find it weird. I remember other parents in the schoolyard thought I was precocious calling her Astrid, but when they found out she wanted it that way, they looked at her like she was precocious. I'm just trying to give some context before I mention Astrid's slumps. That's her word for them, slumps. She's had them off and on for years, but they usually don't last very long, a few days at most. During a slump, she stays in bed and I take charge. More and more took charge when she was alive, but after that, it was left to me. So more and more is the grandmother who really um, sort of anchored Felix before she passed away when he was a young man. And I think you really um, hit on something interesting, Annie, which is that um, because Felix's parents are so immature, he has to be mature beyond his years. Right. Yeah. And it's amazing how he does that. And... What I love about him is uh, that he also can be a kid and he has some terrific friends that help him be a kid and be silly and goofy and uh, have that part of his life feel rich and full as well. So I, I feel really happy for him that he can still have the opportunity through his friendships to have moments of being a kid. Yeah. So when the book starts, Felix um, is sitting in a police office, talking to a police officer, um, and he's explaining their circumstances, particularly um, how he and his mother came to be living in this West Valley of Anne. I wondered if you could just give us a brief summary, as Felix does, of their struggles with housing. Mm So they haven't always lived in a van, and when the story starts, it's about um, four months that they, prior to that, that things started to fall apart. And it's so interesting, you know, for people that are um, not secure about their home situation or their living situation, how um, in the forefront it is of their thinking, because Felix can specifically talk about how at one point they lived in a 400-square-foot basement, and then another point they lived in a 600-square-foot apartment, and then... They, were, they owned an 800-square-foot condo before they had to live with their grandmother or more more. And then um, once more more died and all of those other situations fell apart um, when, after she died. Uh, and The part that really sticks out for me, because it's true that Astrid um, doesn't hold jobs very well, nor friendships, and that that makes their housing more unstable, but there's a point at which Astrid and Felix, when Mormore dies, they inherit her house. Right. They're able, they come into some money and they purchase a condo, right? right? And they're living in this condo quite happily in a neighborhood he loves, with a school he loves. But the condo starts sinking. Right. And Thank the you. structure, the, it's structurally unsound. And each person in those condos has to pay, I think it's like $40,000. And so what was a stable housing situation that they could afford, despite Astrid's employment um, irregularities, 
they're suddenly, they have to sell it at a loss. And that starts this spiral, this downward spiral. Um, And so Astrid's not perfect, but this situation was out of her control. Right. So, right, you're right, absolutely right about that. And she has that, you know, that sense starts the spiral and and that in combination with, um, you know, a struggle to find a job that, she also actually had a job as an art teacher, but again, a thing out of her control was that the enrollment in the art classes decreased and they didn't need to keep her. And that was not anything that Astrid could control. So some of those situations out of her control um, in combination with some of her challenges with holding down a job, I think made maintaining a stable home environment really hard yeah. place to live. Yeah. I think that's really important. Um, I think it's really easy to pigeonhole or stereotype poor people and think that they are poor because of the ch- bad choices they make. Mm-hmm. We all make bad choices. Right. Some of us just have stronger safety nets. Right. Right. That's a perfect, uh, a really good point because I think with more and more gone, that was a big safety net for both of them. Um, and the the man that Astrid had been sharing a living space with and Felix was there as well left and that was another uh, person that had been kind of a support and a safety net for them as well so um, and I think some of the shame around um, you know uh, insecurity around your your home situation and not being able to talk to people uh, may you know I think contributes to that spiral continuing because uh, it's you know it's uncomfortable to ask for help. It's uncomfortable to seek out resources that might identify you as a person who doesn't have a secure or stable home situation. And so I think um, both of them and Astrid was very proud and didn't want to ask for a lot of support or help because I think she wanted to be able to provide that for Felix um, and maintain this hopefulness that things would work out. Yeah, so I um, I could really, I, I had a lot of empathy for the before and after more and more. Like mm-hmm. the way in which uh, Felix's grandmother was such, um, you know, such an amazing support for he and for Astrid. And um, my grandparents were a safety net for my family. And I, I can't imagine what my childhood would have been like without their support. Mm-hmm. Um, and I see this a lot for our Vermont students. I think this shows up a lot for students in our schools. Um, they're really reliant on the support of aunts and uncles and grandparents and other family members. Um, and some of our students really lack those support networks. And um, so for me, this story, is, this book is really important to have in Vermont school libraries because I think it's important for, that many of our students could see themselves in Felix's story. And I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, you know, in my, the school community where I teach, um, and I also live in the town next to that, a lot of our families, are, are, our kids are being raised by their grandparents more, uh, more and more that number's increasing. And if they're not being raised by them, they're definitely being supported and you know the the parenting and the caring for them is being shared so I do think that a lot of kids would see themselves in Felix I also you know think in terms of that um, you know a security around a, a consistent home and space to live is something that I think more and more kids uh, in the community where I live I know would identify with as well yeah and I do think that you know grandparents um, 
it, I think it's kind of a wonderful relationship to see. And I just, I can't say enough that Astrid really loves Felix. Oh, yeah. This kid is really well-loved. Mm-hmm. Oh, totally well-loved, yes. And I, um, one of the moving parts for me was when Horatio the hamster died. And Astrid had um, gone out to get a heater, a space heater for the van. And got, um, was ended up having to try to shoplift it and got caught. And so it was held up at the police station because of that and wasn't home for Felix when he woke up and discovered that Horatio was dead. And so when she did come back, uh, her love and her comforting of him was just, that was just such a great part of the book for me and and just really um, reminded me how much she does love Felix and how much he loves her and how much, he even called her mom in that moment because his emotions were so strong and his grief was so great. And he, he knew that even though he doesn't call her mom, she is still that to him. She is still that one who cares and nurtures and takes care of him, yeah. Yeah. I just don't want to villainize her. I'm, I'm never fond of books that create a villain out of somebody um, who, you know, maybe struggles with mental illness, um, but who is doing the best she can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She's Astrid dead. is really doing the best she can. She totally is. And I... The humor in this book that helps us kind of appreciate that about her, too, is what um, one of the other things that I really loved about this when he talks about Astrid's lies and the different kinds of lies she's telling. And I had that marked as something um, maybe to read or talk about here today. I don't know. I would love it if you would turn to page 31 and read the opening paragraph under Astrid's Guidebook to Lies. I suppose I need to pause here to explain that, yes, on occasion, my mother lies, but it's important to note that she has levels of lies and rules surrounding each, sort of like the Church of Scientology and their levels of operating thetans. Her rationales don't always make a lot of sense, but this is how I break them down in my head. Let's just go through the list. The first one is the invisible lie. And this is your run-of-the-mill white lie, the type we all tell multiple times a day without even thinking about it. For example, you say you've just been diagnosed with a terminal illness and your waiter, bus driver, says, how are you? You say, fine, because it's understood that they don't really want to know the truth. Yeah. And then I love this one, the give peace a chance lie. Yeah, and he refers to that a lot. Um, and sees that in other people as well throughout the story. Um, to spare, it's the kind of lie that we say to spare someone's feelings. Um, you know, someone asked uh, Astrid's waitress friend asked her if she looked, if the pants that she had on made her look big and uh, her butt looked big. And you know, Astrid of course said no because she didn't want to hurt her feelings. Yeah. Then there's the embellishment lie. And, and Astrid, he's, uh, Felix says, would, would argue that this really isn't lying. It's just adding some flavor, like putting more spices into a dish. Um, she might pad her resume with some things that aren't, shall we say, accurate, depending on the type of job she's applying for. It's mm-hmm. a great one. The no one gets hurt lie. These are bald-faced lies aimed at helping out the liar in some way, but, and this is crucial, they harm no one. Yeah. And then the someone might lose an eye lie. These are the worst type of lies, the kind that have the potential to hurt the teller or the telly or both. 
This is early on in the book, and what I love is that um, we come back to this again as both Astrid and Felix himself tell lies. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So and he's really exploring morality mm-hmm. in this really interesting way in 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 a life where he has to, um, because of shame and circumstance, mm-hmm. tell different sorts of lies just to survive. Right, and not to, you know, he doesn't want his friends to know that he doesn't have a home, and he. He uses some of these lies to just, again, you know, like you said, uh, not feel so horrible about himself and the shame that goes along with maybe not having a home and the fear that what would his friends think about him. I think that brings up something really interesting because Felix doesn't think of himself as homeless. Um, and that just reminded me of a couple of things I'd like to process with you. And one was this, this American Life episode um, about uh, a girl who found refuge in a library and didn't realize that the reason her mom took her to the library every day is because they were homeless. And she didn't realize until much later. And then recently on a learning journey, I took to Hawaii to study place-based learning. Um, There's a huge um, problem with people who don't have adequate housing. And so they set up encampments and um, the um, advocates there are calling it houselessness because these folks are making homes. And in fact, Astrid and his mother do make a home out of the Westphalia van. They just don't have a house. And then I think about how in schools, we use this term housing insecure, because many of our students without houses um, are living with family members or in houses that are too small. They're sharing homes with other people. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I'm thinking about uh, how the terminology impact self-identity because Felix has this moment where he suddenly realizes oh and he realizes it in contrast to the homeless man on the street and it occurs to him suddenly like I'm like that guy right right I was thinking about that especially when they finally um, get that apartment uh, above the grocery store and shh no spoilers (laughs) I know I was Wondering if I should go there, but I think I do think he sees that you know, housing and and having a home are, are different, and they you know and they look different. Um, you know his situation looked different from Rob or Bob, the man who was living in a cardboard box uh, beside a building, and um, and even when he brought his friends Winnie and Dylan to the van, and he finally opened up to them about where his home was, right? And when he was talking to them and showing them around, he realized that he had a lot of what makes a home. And um, it, it made it feel different for him, I think, to be open about it and, and bring his friends there. Um, absolutely. And um, it's, this, it's this huge moment in the book, too, that I think is really interesting to explore with kids about Winnie and Dylan have to decide whether or not to disclose this secret, right? Because um, Felix swears them to secrecy. They're not allowed to talk about, he they can't tell anyone because he doesn't, his family is afraid of um, the Department of Children and Families or whatever the Canadian Ministry version. of Child, yes, Ministry of Children and something, yes. Yes, he's afraid of that. And so um, he doesn't want to be separated from his mom and he worries about that and so he, he swears them to secrecy and and, um, we won't give it away but Winnie and Dylan really have to wrestle with whether or not to keep his secret Mm -hmm. right 
Yeah. Oh, can I add something too? The other part I think about is you know so f- one of Felix's strategies to try and change his situation and get he and Astrid out of the van is to enter this who, what, where, when game show. It's kind of like a Jeopardy type of show, and he's a master at uh, answering the questions right that get asked. They range, you know, there's history, geography, science, all the whole gamut. And he, you know, enters this contest hoping that the prize money will be what is needed to get he and his mom back on track again and um, more, you know, having more housing security in their life. Um, And uh, at one point, uh, he realizes that they might be in a motel where the signs on the motel have letter lit, lit up letters that are not lighting up so the words aren't clear and um, there's uh, some shady characters that live there and there's a whole list of what you can do and what you can't do and it for him that doesn't feel like a home for him that feels like uh, a place that's not safe and I think it again makes him appreciate the van even though there were a lot of struggles living there there was the ability to be who he was and feel safe and secure with Astrid there. And he has to be incredibly resilient both he and Astrid do he has all of these strategies for dealing with this housing situation like keeping clean Mm -hmm. he keeps a toiletry kit in his locker Um, hiding the truth takes a lot of work Mm -hmm. right like he has to sort of lie about where he lives, but he also has to, you know, sort of pretend like he has everything he needs and it requires a real resourcefulness. And then just the life skills he has for dealing with that reality. So I'm on page 67 and it says, as September drew to a close, it got colder, especially at night. This is something you become acutely aware of when you live in a van, but we adapted. As Astrid likes to say, living in a Westphalia definitely makes a person more resourceful. Resourceful, Felix, is a good life skill to have. And we are nothing if not resourceful. Take Wi-Fi, for example. When we need it, we go to a coffee shop or find an unsecured network. When something needs recharging, like a phone or batteries for our headlamp, we plug in somewhere like the laundromat. Sometimes we plug in at a power source outside an empty house. On the west side of Vancouver, there are a lot of big brand new houses with no one living in them. Astrid says they are investment properties. It's one of her pet peeves. Our city is becoming a playground for the rich. Enormous empty homes when so many people who live here can't find affordable housing. Our politicians should be ashamed of themselves, she says over and over again. He goes on to talk about um, food and how they survive on food. And and this is a point where I got really, um, my heart broke for Felix even uh, more. He says, but to be clear, Mm -hmm. I am not malnourished. Not too badly, anyway. I don't think I'm suffering from scurvy or a vitamin deficiency or anything like that. We shop at No Frills where you can get really good deals on produce they're about to throw out. And once in a while, my mom will. Mm-hmm. And we come to a place of morality again. Mm-hmm. Um, what are your thoughts about um, sort of Felix's resiliency and all of the life skills he has to? Yeah, I, I think it's amazing. I, I know in addition to what you've talked about, just uh, um, you know, when Astrid is in one of her slumps and she might not get out of bed, there's uh, in the van things he needs to get to that he can't get to until she's out of her bed, and so he learns to plan around that and access those things 
when he can, when it's not a rush for him to get to school. Or, or sometimes he can't and he has to go to school in the clothes he slept in or wore the day before. And so he has a plan for um, cleaning himself up at school when those situations arise. He, he, just, um, he just, you know, amazes me in his ability to, to get to school every day and, and be the amazing kid and friend to his friends that he is every day with everything he has to go through. Um, and as far as the morality goes, I th one of the interesting things, so uh, sometimes the Astrid needs to shoplift so that they can have food or things that they need to survive in the van. And Felix struggles with that, and I think he struggles from knowing that it's not right to steal and also that uh, he worries about his mom getting caught and what that might mean for them in terms of them me staying as a family. And he keeps track of the things that have been shoplifted with a plan to, when they get back on their feet again, reimburse all the places where things have been taken, food or other items. And um, I just, you know, again, I think that um, just speaks a lot to his character and his understanding of right and wrong, but his ability also to understand that uh, situations sometimes demand us to be resourceful in ways that are that are you know the right thing to do and sometimes things that aren't the right aren't the right thing to do but they're not hurting anybody yeah just like yeah. his lies just like his lies right yeah he so wants to be a good person and he's a you're, you've mentioned several times that he's a good friend and he has good friends um dylan was a friend he went to school with when they lived in their condo right and they used to visit each other's houses. And mm -hmm. when they moved uh, out of the neighborhood, he didn't have access to Dylan anymore. He loves to go to Dylan's house because um, <laughs> there's lots of food. Right, and a warm bed and a warm shower and all of those things that are just available and not needing, you don't have to work to have them be available. They're just there. And Dylan's family is so welcoming. Yes. And then he makes this other friend, he and Dylan end up being friends with this other person, Winnie, who I think of as the Hermione Granger of this yes, book. Yes, I agree. That's great. Hermione, as you may or may not recall, listeners, I bet you do, um, was kind of an annoying know-it-all at the beginning of the bossy, first book. Yep. Yes, and um, she sort of wheedled her way into Harry and Ron's friendship and eventually into their hearts. And, and Winnie Wu sort of does something similar. She's sort of an, an annoying know-it-all and, mm -hmm. um, and becomes their friend. And I really love <laughs> this scene on page 72 and 73 when, um, when um, Dylan and Felix first visit Winnie's house. Um, her mom is a, a doctor. I think she's an obstetrician. And um, so her mom is sleeping after a late shift, and, and Mr. Wu, her father, is there, and um, Winnie's fixing them snacks, but she makes this terrible gluten-free bread. And so <laughs> Winnie, it says, held out a plate to her dad. You sure you won't have one? Mr. Wu patted his stomach. Wish I could. Still stuffed from a late breakfast. Honey, do you mind getting my water glass? I left it in the other room. The moment she was gone, he motioned to us, quick, take out the cheese and hand me the bread. We did as we were told. We woofed down the cheese while he slipped the bread into the garbage, making sure to put other items on top of it. When Winnie returned, he told a give peace a chance. 
your friends are bottomless pits. I'm making them lunch number two. He started pulling stuff out of his grocery bags. Steamed pork buns, anyone? Bah, what have I said about pork? Winnie chastised. Once in a while I need my fix, he said. I ate four of them. They were legit delicious. Mr. Wu seemed like a very good dad. Before Dylan and I left, I used the bathroom. It was white and clean and smelled like lavender potpourri. They even had a heated toilet seat. I sat there for a long time, feeling the warmth radiate through my bum, and suddenly, out of nowhere, tears pricked my eyes. I longed for a toilet, and I longed for my dad. Um, and so I really love this because actually toilets are a big theme. And yes, and it's so funny if you think about really his priority was having a home would mean having my own toilet. And for him, there were some struggles in the book for just being able to have that privacy and that space to use the bathroom and go to the bathroom. And, you know, for any of us, that's a really... Um, embarrassing thing to not have that and for a 12 year old boy even more so you know yeah. So, yeah I mean not having a home not having a house living in a van is hard at the best of times like if you're out camping on family vacation there's already a little hardship that goes with that mm-hmm. anytime that times get tough mm-hmm. it gets even harder so mm-hmm. when Felix gets really sick it's just right. awful right mm-hmm. when um, it gets really cold, cold yep um, when his mom's in a slump, there are just so many times in which it goes beyond just slightly challenging to to downright almost impossible. Yeah, and something that most people would not have to endure over a long period of time. You know, if your house gets stinky, you can clean it or air it out. And sometimes in a small space like a van, that's that's not so easy. Yeah. So, yeah. But he hides it. He manages really to mostly hide it from the teachers at his school. Mm-hmm. Like Mr. Tebow is his classroom teacher, I think. And he picks up on it a little bit. He asks, I think, one of the days when um, Felix wasn't able to change his clothing, he checks in about is it, if everything is okay. Um, but they, the teachers don't, for the most part, know or push really hard to find out more. Yeah. And as an educator, I can understand that. Mm -hmm. Like, it's really hard to navigate how do you help somebody. I I guess what's really hard to navigate is how do you make sure that you're allowing somebody to claim their full dignity? Mm-hmm. but also to make sure they have everything they need. Right. I would really struggle with a Felix in my class because I, even if I suspected things weren't quite all right at home, I would also want him to have agency over his life. Right. Yeah, and to know how to let him know that resources are there without having to feel like you're prying or talking about things that aren't just comfortable or for him to talk about or that he's not ready to talk about or yeah I agree you do want to be sensitive and respect people's situations and dignity like you said I think that would be really hard as an educator for me too to know how to navigate that with him right yeah I I really can see this also as um so this book no fixed address to me felt like such an important um empathy read for adults who work with young people, mm-hmm. and also for young people to really mm-hmm. um, grapple with what it's 
how easy it can be mm -hmm. um, to lose your house right. or to be put in, in um, a predicament that it's impossible to get yourself back fully on your feet. Right. And, I, I, and Winnie, I think, does a good job of modeling how to be a good, good friend around that. You know, I think at one point in the story, I think she's coming to understand that Felix might be poor. And she's not in her situation. Her mom is a doctor and her dad's a nurse. And, um, and she just, you know, as kids can so well do with one another, asks, are you poor, Felix? And they try to talk about it a little bit, and then she shares her food with him because so often he comes to school with no breakfast and then having had no breakfast and then having no lunch to bring with him. So she, um, you know, she just doesn't make a big deal about it and just graciously and kindly shares her food with him and um, it doesn't doesn't try to save him or fix him or just you know wants to know and and just because she cares about him yeah yeah there's a real sweetness a real tenderness in his friendships and how they support each other yeah absolutely there's also a great um, middle school dance kind of scene that happens, which is just so much fun. Mm -hmm. Readers, you will enjoy that section of the book, too. Mm -hmm. um, I um, This book is on, as you mentioned earlier, the Dorothy Canfield Fisher Award list, and um, which is our Vermont State Middle Grades Student Choice Award list. And um, recently in the news, we hear that a name change is planned mm -hmm. for 2020. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, that process and what's happening there? Yeah, so I, I think people were ready for a, to hear a decision about this. It's been being talked about uh, for quite a while. And I'm... I'm happy that we're moving in that direction because I, you know, I think uh, there's a lot of different opinions out there. I, I think, you know, once we learned that that name was serving to exclude some kids and some families from participating in that book award because of Dorothy Canfield's involvement in the eugenics movement, that it was, for me, a no-brainer to look for some other name. Um, you know, I think book awards and especially student choice awards should, um, should do all they can to include and, and pull people into that um, experience versus serve to exclude. So uh, so the decision was made to change the name and uh, Jason Broughton, the, the state librarian, announced it at the Dorothy Canfield Fisher conference last week. So when we introduce, uh, so when kids vote on this list um, in the spring, so next April they'll be voting on the current list that which includes uh, no fixed address. They will also have an opportunity to vote on uh, a new name for the award. So they'll be given some options. I don't know the number for sure, but I'm guessing anywhere from three to five options. And they'll cast their vote for what they'd like the book award to be called from this point forward. And so we felt that would be a great way to, again, give kids some ownership in the name and also, uh, you know, it'll make them more familiar with it and maybe more excited about this book award as well so yeah so tell me what book did students in grades four through eight choose for the 2019 dorothy canfield fisher award winner so the alan gratz's book refugee won for this year and uh what's exciting about that is this is the second year in a row for him to be a winning author uh, last year his project 1065 won and so kids are really excited about his books, and uh, so he's a winner again, second year in a row. 
So it's wonderful. Yeah. When I was um, both a, a, a kindergarten to sixth grade school librarian and then again in seven to 12, um, these books flew off my shelf. Mm -hmm. Yeah, his you books do. You put together, um, I mean the Dorothy Canfield Fisher oh, work. Yes. You all put together such a lovely list. Um, some of my favorite middle grades reads have been on that list, mm -hmm. including now Felix and, I know, and No Fixed Address. I wondered if there are some other gems on the list that you'd like to share with us. Yeah, so there's a lot of great books, and I'm really excited about our new list. Um, there's a great, we have some great Vermont author books on this year's list, and one, our creepy book, we always like to try to put a creepy scary book on the list every year, and Small Spaces uh, by Catherine Arden is a great uh, a great creepy book and also a great place book in terms of the setting in Vermont and kids are gonna this one's gonna fly off the shelf I know for sure so kids are kind of going on this field trip from hell where they're like stuck in this um, uh, field and there's scary scarecrows and there's all kinds of mystery and it all revolves around this book that um, a woman was going to toss into a river and this kid grabbed it and then strange things start happening so I can't tell you more than that but it's going to be a really fun scary book that I'm sure will fall will fly off the shelf so it sounds like a winner and I know one of the Vermont um, authors is also Anne Braden oh yes in her book um, the benefits of being an octopus again one of my favorites on the list and one that the minute I, I read it in a day and I said I could think of so many kids that I've worked with that uh, this would be their experience again it's a book um, about a kid living in poverty and living in a situation uh, where her mom is not physically abused but emotionally and mentally abused and stepping stepping in much like Alec, uh, Felix to have to be the adult in that situation and um, just take on a lot of responsibility as a as a middle school kid that um, shouldn't have to be her life so um, another resilient, strong character that is struggling through some hard times and some, uh, again, security around where home is and where they'll be living and um, all those things that come with, you know, uh, financial struggles, home stability struggles, and um, yeah. I loved that book so much, and I'm really excited because Ann Braden has agreed to come to our Middle Grades Institute conference. Oh, awesome in June and she's going to be doing some workshops and meeting with educators and meeting with the students who come there for camps. So. Oh great, yeah that there I think kids will identify um, with that book so much and there's other issues too that are talked about in there like um, you know gun rights and things like that so I think a lot of really interesting topics that kids will connect with and also be able to talk about and discuss with each other. Um, Another great Vermont author book is Just Like Jackie, which, again, a, um, a girl who is bi biracial and lives with a grandparent um, and is kind of trying to learn from him about her, her parents, um, but her grandfather is struggling with uh, dementia or Alzheimer's. It's not, you know, really clear which stage or what. Um, but memory loss anyways and um, aging. And so she's trying to cover up for him because again, that fear of what will happen to her family if people find out that her grandfather is not doing well. Mm -hmm. And you know, just so many, uh, so many of these books have such amazing, strong, resilient kids and characters that I um, can't wait for our students and our readers to 
connect with and, and learn about and hopefully identify with or learn from in some way. I was delighted to see that Amal Unbound by Aisha Saeed was on the list. Yes. That was a favorite of mine, and it's um, it's set in Pakistan. Yes, and it's, it's one of those windows to the world about, you know, things that we might take for granted as, uh, you know, school and our day-to-day life uh, isn't always a, a given in other parts of the world. And so she's a real uh, hero for girls and edu- the importance of education and you know, risking her security and her family because of that. And, uh, you know, even she has to ultimately become an indentured servant for a wealthier man in her community. But while she's there, she's so um, strong in her beliefs about the power of education that she teaches another servant girl there to read who never had the opportunity to learn to read. So love those love those books with fierce characters yes yes she's really fierce i loved that one Mm -hmm. Uh, front desk is another great one by kelly yang and again this is uh, about a a chinese american girl whose parents um immigrated to the united states and live in california and they they run a they manage a hotel and she really steps up and manages the front desk she's good at math and her parents are trying to just make a living and, and make it in America. And um, she, again, assumes a, a really important role in the success of the hotel. And you also, through her, um, understand some of the prejudices and discrimination that Asian Americans experience. And then also some of the characters um, in the hotel, there's an African American man there who's experiencing some discrimination. And, um, and she starts to help help readers understand the connection between, you know, um, prejudice and discrimination and how it cuts across uh, a lot of different, um, you know, things in terms of our race or our socioeconomic status and things like that. So she's a great character for shedding some light on that for all of us and for her own kind of understanding of that and wanting to um, do something about that. Her family tends to um, take in people that are either... um, you know, immigrating to the country and trying to get themselves established or, or, you know, experiencing some oppression in some way and they seek a little refuge in that hotel and they help them out um, in the midst of their own trying to get their feet on the ground and get established. So just, um, you know, the ability of people to care about each other even in spite of their own struggles and their own, um, you know, misfortunes in life. That feels like a great companion to another book on the list, Harbor Me, by Jacqueline Woodson, that's also about um, security and stability. And in this case, there's some stories around immigration. Yeah. Another book about um, communities that support you when you're you're struggling. Right. Um, She She always writes just the right book at the right time, and this is another perfect example of that. uh, Six kids are allowed to come together um, in a classroom every Friday afternoon just to talk without any adults there. And so as they become more comfortable and more able to share and be vulnerable with each other, we learn that they have, you know, one has a parent that uh, might be deported and he's not sure if he'll ever see his dad again. Another boy is experiencing racial, racial profiling out on the streets of New York and is scared because of that to be out there um, walking around. Another um, has a father who was incarcerated 
and is soon to be released and she's been living with her uncle in the meantime so uh, her you know anticipation and um, worry about how that reunification will be Um, and you know so kids with a a range of issues that are real and every day and and for some kids here in Vermont some of those might be things they connect to but some of them might be windows to experiences that they they might not have here Um, you know because of our demographics and because of um, living in a more rural setting versus an urban setting so I love those books that can kind of transport kids to um, places with other kids where they just might might not have those experiences but can again build that empathy and that understanding and that broader lens to to think about things just like the kids in harbor me having a dialogue and finding common ground right our vermont students can have a dialogue with a book and find that common ground absolutely that's a great way to say that yeah i love that well i'm a huge fan of this um book award program. Um, As a librarian, I often had kids in small reading groups reading this book, teachers using them as read-alouds because they're so good and it really refreshed their read-aloud list and offered them something new. Um, I used to borrow books from uh, the Department of Libraries book sets so that my kids could be um, reading these in small groups. They could send you six or eight copies and um, I just, so many of my students have um, loved this program over the years. So just deep appreciation to the committee for continuing to provide a book list that is diverse and robust and just has so many really beautiful stories on it. Yeah, well, it's a a lot of work, but it's a lot of great work. And it's, um, you know, I think we're working every year to be sure that it reflects a lot of uh, different perspectives, there's a lot of, um, you know, diverse points of view, representation of different kinds of families, of different kinds of kids, of different kinds of, um, you know, different places in the world, things like that. Um, And that we also have, try to have something for everyone, you know, I think every year, uh, nonfiction can be a little bit of a struggle on this list, just finding interesting nonfiction that's not too much, that, you know, wouldn't be something kids would want to dive into. Uh, for pleasure reading, because these are more pleasure reading kinds of books, you know, um, but that, uh, but also the importance, you know, that some kids are really drawn to nonfiction, so finding those nonfiction sometimes is our our challenge. Um, we always usually like to have some graphic novels on the list because we know that those are super popular, and we have some great ones on that list. Um, the Prince and the Dressmaker in particular is just a wonderful book about um, about acceptance and uh, being true to who you are, and it's just great. It's a great book, and it's flying off the shelves. Before it even got on the list, it was flying off the shelves in my library. So It's so, a beautiful book. Mm-hmm, I love that mm-hmm. one, too. Yes, and uh, and again, you know, I think kids choose books for all different reasons, and, um, I, you know, I, I think the artwork in that book has appeal for a lot of kids. The, the characters are amazing, um, and the story is really a beautiful, important story. Yeah. Thank you to the whole committee, but uh, but to you also for um, creating a list where so many kids can see themselves. Yeah. I really appreciate that. And they can get to know people unlike themselves as well. Right. Um, right. It's great. It's been such a pleasure talking to you about No Fixed Address and about um, um, the awards list. Thank you so much for coming in, Annie. Well, thanks for having me, and thanks for 
choosing this book, it is a it is a great one on the list. So yes, I hope everyone will check it out. You're going to want to read it aloud to somebody. I know I did. Definitely. I'm Jeannie Phillips, and this has been an episode of Vermont Ed Reads, talking about what Vermont educators and students are reading. Thank you to Annie Brabazon for appearing on the show and talking with me about No Fixed Address. If you're looking for a copy of No Fixed Address, check your local library. And as always, a big shout out to Audrey Holman, our incredible audio engineer, for all the work she does to put out each episode of Vermont Ed Reads. To find out more about Vermont Ed Reads, including past episodes, upcoming guests and reads, and a whole lot more, you can visit bcedreads.tarrantinstitute.org. We also have some excellent transcripts, which are just chock full of links and resources and materials for you. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at bcedreads. This podcast is a project of the Tarrant Institute for Innovative Education at the University of Vermont.